The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins from the Society of St. Pius V and Pastor of Immaculate Conception Church in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Hello, Tom. I hope you had a blessed Christmas and um, we'll have a very blessed coming year. Thank you, Father. For all of our viewers, too. Same to you, definitely. <laughs> we actually received a couple of nice emails with some Christmas blessings, and I, I think we, oh, could, we could, could start with those tonight. Uh, this first one here says, Many thanks to you, Mr. Nagley and Father Jenkins, for all you have both given us in the year that is past. What a blessing to have this ongoing voice of truth in the midst of all this spiritual darkness that seems to be daily increasing until the triumph of Our Lady's Immaculate Heart is a reality in the Church and thus the world. May you and your family have a blessed Christmas and a holy new year. I look forward to each new show that you post, so please keep them coming in the year ahead. Well, thank you. That's yeah. very, very nice. Encouraging. Definitely. There was another one here, Father, that uh, I thought was great as well, where the Spirit says that I just wanted to extend my thanks to those involved in your program. It has been a long process for me, but I finally decided to attend the True Mass here in Newfoundland, Canada. There are two priests that travel here to offer Mass every couple months at separate times. I'll be attending my first on December 19th. I'm eager and even excited to give a good, thorough confession and receive the Lord in Holy Communion. Please pray for me. God bless you, and thank you. Well, God bless you, too. And, yeah. and thank you for writing. That's, that's good to know. Definitely. I thought that was, that was very nice. Uh, then, Father, I thought that... You know, Tom, I don't know that uh, all of our viewers realize it or not, but every month I, I do offer a Mass, usually a Sunday Mass, for our regular viewers and supporters, mm -hmm. um, because there are costs involved, and especially the benefactors of what Catholics believe, well, they can count on having uh, at least the one Mass a month offered, offered at Immaculate Conception Church itself uh, for their intentions. So mm -hmm. I want the good folks who've written in words of encouragement to know that uh, they'll, they'll be included in those Masses that I offer. Definitely. I know that's a consolation to many because we receive all kinds of emails from uh, from different viewers asking for prayers for various situations. And um, mm -hmm. I, it's, it's nice to pass that along, that there is actually something of substance being done for them. Mm -hmm. So, Father, with this, uh, this Christmas season that we're in now, I thought that we could take just a minute to talk about uh, some of the, the nativity scenes that, that we've seen around this this one that they've placed in the Vatican yeah. has has made made quite this quite the splash there and uh, one viewer offered uh, his, his reflection on this and I thought it was it was spot on and I'd like to just read just a little bit of what he said here in regards to to the nakedness of some of the, the yeah. figures and the in the scene there, and he says that uh, in regards to this, to this nakedness, they wish to use it to deceive us and celebrate their wantonness, but were betrayed by their own stupidity. Adorned in riches of the world, in one hand vouching for disgusting sins that cry to heaven for vengeance, and with the other pretending piety, they act shamelessly before the eyes of heaven and the entire world, shaming the blessed Lord and the blessed Mother, abashing their own parents, tradition, making children blush and weeping in discomfort. It is a sore trait which the Vatican displays in abundance as each year passes by. In the nativity scene, that naked man which does not belong in the picture of the nativity is them and all their shamelessness. They threw away white garments of sanctity, girdles of protective grace, to pose in naked shamelessness before the world, now lower than ever before at the bottom of the pit, unpenitent and blindly proud for what they do and have done so far. Well stated. And uh, what he doesn't mention is something I just found out from... Uh, from our uh, support staff, Horky, here, that uh, uh, they also stripped the child Jesus of his swaddling clothes to uh, reveal him there, shamelessly, also. And um, what our uh, writer says so well uh, does not refer to the fact that that nativity scene was actually produced by a quasi-parish 
that has very close ties to the so-called LGBT crowd in Italy and uh, reflects, reflects their deviancy and their perversity. And Francis knew this. I mean, he, he actually reviewed it ahead of time and approved it. And uh, when you say uh, it made a bit of a splash, uh, what came to mind is the seagulls. <laughs> you know? um, the seagulls keep appearing, evidently, in, in during Francis's uh, tenure here as the Pope of a New Order. Uh, someone just pointed out that the seagull made his appearance uh, the day of Francis's uh, choosing, uh, I believe, by the Freemasons and the enemies of the Church. <clears throat> And uh, the seagulls have appeared at various times when Francis was releasing doves, peace doves. Uh, seagull actually uh, murdered one of the doves, one of the peace doves, right in front of the eyes of everybody. Uh, it, they were barely out of the hands of the children when the, a seagull swooped down and tore one of his peace doves to pieces. And uh, now they, they are swarming over the head, uh, heads of those who are coming to his manger scene. They're scavengers. Uh, basically, they're garbage pickers. So when you say that this has made a bit of a splash, well, I guess the seagull, seagulls uh, actually are making a bit of a splash of their own around Francis's, um, Francis's manger scene. By the way, if you were to look at the lore of the seagull, you'd see that uh, in some cultures, the seagulls initially represent some kind of prosperity. Uh, but they can also represent uh, uh, violence and even death at the hands of one's loved ones. Because um, they can be very vicious creatures. Um, so, um, it's just interesting to see seagulls swarming over this mangy, I wouldn't call it a manger scene, I'll call it a mangy scene of Francis in the Vatican. It's a, it's a blasphemy and it's... Uh, and it is a perversity, there's no doubt about it. It is loudly denounced by some rather um, uh, notable figures in and outside the churches promoting the uh, lesbian, bisexual, and uh, queer, and so on, all the rest, as they call themselves, agenda. And that is what is being advertised right now before the world and before all the pilgrims to Rome in, in uh, St. Peter's Square right now, right in front of the Vatican. Mm -hmm. How evil can you get? Well, Francis himself visited on uh, New Year's Eve. That's when the seagulls made their appearance. As Francis himself was making his appearance, so did the seagulls. And they were, they were circling overhead all during the time that he was walking to the manger scene. When he knelt down there, he got a, a guided tour of it. And he was, he was uh, seen to be smiling and chuckling all the way at what he was seeing there. By the way, our writer talks about the, the, this naked figure there. <clears throat> Doesn't look like a poor man. He looks very well fed, actually. He looks also very well worked out in the gym. as something that would appeal to those who are deviant. <clears throat> but there's also a figure of a, of a corpse with its arms hanging down, arm hanging down. And uh, it's very gruesome, being kind of slid into what looks like an oven. I guess it's supposed to be a grave, but it looks like he's being slid into an oven, like a pizza oven. And uh, there's also a figure that's supposed to, uh, I guess, represent uh, burying the dead, because this is all supposed to be centering around the theme of the corporal works of mercy. There's also what looks like a disembodied head behind bars. Looks like somebody cut somebody's head off instead of van bars. That's supposed to represent visiting the imprisoned, too. So, um, we, we have a really sick, we have sick minds behind this, but the sickest mind of all is the one in the Vatican who approved this and, and, and decrees that this is going to be put in front of the people, mm -hmm. representing the nativity of Christ. Yeah. Well, from there, Father, let's go to <clears throat> Fatima and visit their nativity scene there, and perhaps oh. we, can, we can put that picture I'm sure that'll be much better. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if one looks at that, Father, there might not be uh, such a, a, a deviant message there, but uh, just looking at, at the figures of the Blessed Virgin and St. Joseph and the, the Christ Child, um, they, there's some kind of, of wood carving that, that just doesn't, just looks like a joke, basically. It seems mm -hmm. that, that they've just... Uh, Are there human figures in there at all? 
Uh, Anything identifiable as human? I, I, they, it looks like perhaps they were trying for that, but didn't, didn't exactly achieve it. So they, they basically, <laughs> blocks of wood. Right? Basically, yeah. <clears throat> sort of totems? Mm hmm And what's in the manger? Is there a manger in there? There's supposed to be a Christ child in there, but it, uh, there, there isn't, isn't a lot of detail. It looks more just like a, uh, a block of wood. A block of wood, yeah. yeah nothing, okay. nothing really. <clears throat> well, you know, years ago, years ago, uh, I was in France looking at some church items that were available, and, um, and uh, the gentleman who actually had salvaged these things. Uh, told us that the the priests of the local church had set up a manger scene consisting of bottles of wine representing Mary and Joseph and the the, the other figures and in the manger was a rock <coughs> a stone okay like a pet rock almost and I guess they thought that was a very meaningful so it's becoming all the rage now to um, to distort and, and kind of slip into a kind of modern surrealistic art in trying to depict um, the, the manger scene. Um, they've now, by the way, come to putting two Josephs in the manger scene because of the L LGBT uh, uh, groups, you know, to please them or to Mary's, right? Mm -hmm. And of course, it's all very sacrilegious and very, uh, very perverted. But this is what it's come to, Tom. This is what the cultural Marxists have been striving for for years, to break down the Catholic culture so that the people are themselves so perverted that they see something meaningful in this. Meaningful, relevant, you know, whatever uh, buzzwords they want to use. But um, it, it is all perverted and a reflection of perverted minds. Definitely. And lost faith. Mm. Well, Father... If we could, Be, uh, I wonder if we could actually uh, put up on the on the screen here as we're talking about this, and do kind of dub in sort of a picture of the uh, yeah. of these things if it's possible, yeah. so people can see what we're talking about. We can do that. Well, Father, let's let's uh, get to some of these viewer emails that, that we received. It's been a couple of weeks since we've done a program. Uh oh, no, by the way, no, if no, I may, okay. it is always delightful as we're traveling around, and we are doing a lot of traveling. Yeah. to see homes that are still brightly lit, beautifully lit for Christmas. And often with a, a large manger scene outside, there are those who are seemingly going out of their way to make a <laughs> statement of their faith in uh, the, the actual birth of the Savior. Mm -hmm. And I think we should go out of our way to let them know we appreciate that yeah. when we can. Yeah. There are still those out there who are not afraid and not ashamed to uh, to profess their faith mm -hmm. in the face of all of this uh, of this hostility and perversity, so we we need to go out of our way to boldly state mm -hmm. our faith. Yeah, I've noticed that's kind of a trend where it's it's uh, where where it seems that the lines are, are being drawn, where it's kind of mm -hmm. all or nothing, where you'll have someone that, that goes all out, or there's mm -hmm. there's actually a uh, a house down the street for me who has a big peace sign that's all lit up that they light up for for christmas so that's their well, um, meaningful yeah that's their, uh, their you didn't go up and thank them for that <laughs> I I did, no. okay no. So. well father let, let's get some of these emails here with with uh the, the the holiday season that that we're in now there's a lot of um a, a lot of visiting <laughs> where, where people will spend time at a relative's house or relatives homes and uh, we had one viewer, I'll try and keep some of the, uh, the, the more particular details discreet, but one, one of our viewers uh, says that, that they spend some time at a relative's house on, on a regular basis, and that family attends an SSPX mass. But this uh, particular individual isn't exactly comfortable going to this SSPX mass with that family just because of things that they've seen there, like... Um, for one example, when they give Holy Communion, they don't seem to make the sign of the cross. Uh, they just place the host right on the tongue. They um, just several things like that. And then besides this that, this is what course, the writer says. Right, exactly. Yeah. There's there's also the whole issue of SSPX aligning with with modernist Rome. Yeah. And so this person really has 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 uh, qualms about attending this SSPX mass. But the whole family that she is staying with is going to this mass. So. What, what can a person in that situation do? Should, should they avoid the Mass altogether? Should they avoid their, their friends, their relatives altogether? What, what should they do? 
The SSPX is a real problem. It is a real problem because it has uh, taken such massive steps toward um, accommodating mo the modernists in, Rome, in Vatican. They're, they're just losing their traditional Catholic character. Uh, it takes more than an occasional Dominus Abiscum to be traditional Catholic. And I'm, I'm not saying the Society of St. Pius X has reduced itself to that, but what I'm saying is it's the entire faith that is a matter of what makes one traditional Catholic. And um, now in the Society of St. Pius X, um, they've bitten on Francis's offer to um, have Novus Ordo priests for the diocese come in and officiate their, at their weddings, right? Um, and uh, I understand that in some cases the people have simply rebelled. That uh, in in some cases they actually arrived to find a novicero priest wedding to offic ready to officiate at their wedding in a society of St. Pius X Church and walked out. They walked out, That's good. or they protested loudly at a time and said, "No, we're not going to do this." And uh, but this is the direction they're heading in, um, and it's it's very bad. It's like they're going through the novicero all over again. You know? um, so. Um, Yes, it wouldn't surprise me to find out that what this young lady is saying is true. Um, so, but the, the, also the, the Society of St. Pius X is having uh, clergymen come in from the Novus Ordo and uh, administering sacraments in their chapels to the people, administering something, anyway, to their own people. And that's not why people go to a Society of St. Pius X chapel, I wouldn't think. Why wouldn't they just stay home and go to the Novus Ordo Church? Why bother going to an SSPX chapel if they're going to be bringing Novus Ordo clergymen in to hear confessions and, and uh, give sermons and, and um, say masses and officiate at weddings? Why do they even bother with the SSPX anymore? So... Um, I would recommend to her that she stay away. I mean, for all we know, they've got a Nova Soto clergyman in there saying the liturgy, or perhaps he's been in there the week before, for all she knows, and he's the one who consecrated the ciborium from which they're going to draw a host to give her for communion? No. I would say she certainly should not go to receive communion there. And uh, it'd be better if she, if she is going to go, for the sake of seeing her friends, she should just pray the rosary. Mm -hmm. um, um, but, I mean, ideally, uh, she, sh she really shouldn't go. Okay. Not as long as they're uh, talking about becoming um, um, co-religionists with Francis. No. Father, in a recent program, we mentioned the, uh, the Shakart line of, of priests and one of our viewers commented that um, some time ago he went to confession to a Shikart line priest mm -hmm. and was wondering if that absolution was valid. He says, I know Shikart shouldn't have gotten consecrated how he did, but I know the church said old Catholics have valid sacraments. I also read that converts from Orthodox churches don't need to confess sins again that they confess to Orthodox priests. Perhaps a general confession would be a good idea. What are your thoughts, Father? Well, it's not only a question of the validity of the holy orders, right? I mean, that is extremely doubtful. And uh, to the point that one cannot verify those are valid orders. You know, there's too many, there are too many very serious questions that uh, really can't be answered satisfactorily about these things. But it's not just a matter of the validity of the holy orders. You see, um, we're talking about, in our case, the church supplying... The, the faculties we need to hear confessions and to absolve people of their sins. And uh, there, there are actually some who, who claim that it, it is not merely a matter of that, but that there is in the church's history such precedent for priests being able to absolve and it, even it, it carry on the faith, give sermons and offer masses, uh, publicly for the Catholic people in times of distress and times of, of confusion and times of persecution, that there are those who say there's a very solid canonical argument even for the fact that, uh, you know, the traditional priests who are really are faithful to tradition, having the necessary faculties 
to, to carry on the faith, regardless. And I think those people have a, have a valid argument there. Because the fact is, the power of magisterium in the church and the power of, of government in the church or jurisdiction fall within that, uh, you know, that, that, that realm of, of uh, the jurisdiction, the power of jurisdiction of the church, giving commands and, and also teaching the faith, on the one hand, are two of the three powers that our Lord gave to his church, to his apostles. But he also gave them the power of, sanctific- of, of justification and sanctification of souls and the power of holy orders. And that third power of holy orders is really what the church is primarily about, the justification and sanctification of the soul. And you'll notice that the way our Lord set up the church, he, uh, and, and the church traditionally has taught this, that the power of the church's teaching authority, teaching faith and morals, under the, under the, um, the category of, of the church's jurisdiction, is a part, it's not, it's not entirely united, how should I say this, I want to say it correctly because I don't want to give the wrong impression here, but the power of holy orders is not, is not completely and absolutely subject to the other powers in the sense that it cannot be exercised uh, without, without the approval of those who, who have the power of magisterium or jurisdiction. The church in her own law has, has empowered those who have the power of holy orders to administer the sacraments, the power of justification of souls, and the sanctification of souls, sometimes even without the necessary you know, delegation or, or uh, granting of powers by the, the human beings, you know, and, and this is clearly God's way, our Lord's way, of allowing the church to continue functioning in her primary mission, even when you have a bad pope or bad bishops, uh, that our Lord wants the supreme law of the church, the salvation of souls, to still have the, have the ability to carry on, even in the most dire circumstances. So I won't say that the power of holy orders... Uh, ministerium is is distinct from, or uh, separate from, or independent of the power of jurisdiction. No, it's not. But the Church has expressed her own mind in making it very clear that that power, for the sake of this justification of souls from sin and the sanctification of souls by sanctifying grace, can continue, even in spite of having a bad hierarchy. Even very uh, a wicked hierarchy that might even be opposed to the to to the good of souls, you know. Um, so there are doctors of the church. Popes themselves have spoken on the matter of uh, of um, errant bishops and even errant popes who would do things that would be harmful for the church and damaging to souls. Saint Robert Bellarmine was one of them. You couldn't think of a more avid champion of papal authority. And yet he says very explicitly, he says, raising the question, what if a pope were to command something that would be injurious to the church and damaging to souls? And St. Robert Bellarmine says that in that case, a Catholic person would have an obligation not to obey and to impede the execution of his commands. In other words, to prevent other people from obeying something damaging like that. And in the case of a priest... That even takes on a very a stronger meaning, that the priest would have to continue for the sake of uh, the supreme law or purpose of the church to administer the sacraments and justify and sanctify souls. This is the mind of the church. This is what Catholic tradition has sh- told us and shown us. By what the church has, has told us in advance and then approved afterwards, in time when crises, crises have arisen in the church, and when she says this is this priest and those those uh, members of the Catholic clergy did the right thing in doing what they did during those times, so um, the power of holy orders um, is a distinct power, and um, it it really expresses the primary 
uh, purpose of the church and the human soul to justify and sanctify the soul from sin and elevate it to God's grace and uh, to bring that soul to salvation. And uh, the church historically in her tradition has given a, a certain latitude to that. But here's the problem. I mean, a latitude to that, that, that her law allows for, even if, even if a bishop, for example, were to absolutely forbid a priest to function under certain circumstances, even if he were excommunicated, the law of the church says that he has the power in an extraordinary case to absolve someone of their sins, a system who is dying in sin. And not only would an excommunicated priest have the power to do so, and in trust and charity, he would in a sense have a duty to do so. And this, this involves priests who have actually violated the laws of the church by doing something actually wrong for which the church has excommunicated him. That certainly doesn't apply to real traditional priests who are just trying to hold on to the faith, despite the fact that there are bishops doing things which the church has customarily traditionally excommunicated for doing. And these are the bishops who are trying to prevent the priests from justifying and sanctifying souls. But anyway, Tom, my point in mentioning is, is this. You know, you, this uh, writer has to ask himself, okay, let me assume, if I can, and he can't, that this Shukart priest or clergyman is validly ordained a priest in the first place. Would the church reasonably grant that man the power to function in the name of the church in administering the sacraments, considering his providence, where he came from, considering where these holy orders came from, Daniel Q. Brown, a, a, an apostate Catholic who actually joined a non-Catholic sect for the sake of getting ordained. We know the church's traditional view on that and how she condemns that. So are we, are we to now assume not only that this was, that this valid, a valid ordination or a valid consecration, and that we must further assume that the church would grant her uh, justifying and thank sanctifying authority and power of her holy orders for this man to function in the name of the Catholic Church. I don't think we can do that. I would not. I would not risk my soul on it. I wouldn't want to risk this writer's soul on it either. And so I would say, uh, by all means, you should find a real traditional Catholic priest um, who, whose holy orders derive from a real Catholic, traditional Catholic bishop and, uh, and make a good confession to that person and do not make these assumptions as though you were um, somehow you know, betting on your, your soul, you know, your soul's salvation. It's, it's just not, it's not Catholic. Mm-hmm. It's not the traditional teaching of the church. Yeah. So you would recommend a general confession to a, a true tradition? Well, I, I would say, you know, but general confession usually involves going to confession and saying to the, to the priest, Father, my last confession was, my last real confession was two weeks ago or whatever. And since that time, these are the sins I've confessed. These are the sins I've committed, but I haven't confessed them yet. Mm-hmm. So I need to be absolved of these sins for the first, you know, freshly, newly. But now I wish also to confess for my past life sins that I've already confessed and that have been absolved. But in this case, it's not the same as a general confession, where the gentleman would have to say, I've made these doubtful confessions to doubtful priests. And so I want to confess these sins as God sees them. I don't know whether they've been validly absolved, I confess them in good faith, but I don't know if the person I went to really had the power to absolve them. Mm-hmm. And so I wish to make it clear in confessing these sins that these, these sins fall in that category. Sure. So that's the kind of general confession <clears throat> I would recommend that he make. Okay. Cool. Fair enough. In other words, he would say virtually the same things he would say in his general confession, but he would just add the proviso that for so many years, or for so many times, I went to confession to those who were doubtfully mm-hmm. priests and doubtfully Catholic priests, and so I, I confess these sins anew <coughs> with the trust that you will give me valid absolution. 
that I can be sure of. Okay, that's good. Uh, well, next email, Father. This viewer says that uh, you recently moved to an area where there is a Society of St. Pius V Mass. There's also Took Line Masses, and then there's also the Diocesan 1962 Masses offered in the area. He says that I previously attended Took Line Masses, but your program on the, the Took Line has made me rethink that course. After applying the criticisms of the Took Consecrations, I do wonder, however, if it would be better to attend a diocesan church. This is because attending a diocesan parish under the cognizance of a bishop with jurisdiction and faculties is the traditional Catholic thing to do, unlike the chicanery that Bishop Took unleashed. Also, wouldn't it be better for me to make my traditional Catholic views known and make efforts to cast out the modernists from our local parishes? Instead of hiding away at a traditionalist chapel, I would be right with them. No and no. <laughs> Absolutely no. no. Uh, first of all, withdraw from the took. Do not associate with that. Do not be part of that. Okay. There are serious problems that obviously we've been through this many times. Um, to go to a diocesan uh, church, uh, basically, it is not the traditional thing to go to, to go to a church where the traditional Catholic faith is not is not present, where the traditional Catholic faith is not professed, where it's not practiced, where the traditional Catholic math is, mass is not offered. That is not traditional, okay, uh, by any means. So. Um, if you're going to style yourself or want to be traditional Catholic, you have to go where the traditional Catholic faith is practiced. Okay? And that is a true traditional Catholic chapel that is served by a true traditional Catholic priest. And uh, going to the Novus Ordo, you might as well go to the Anglican Church. I mean, you might as well go to the Lutheran Church, basically. Um... I mean, I, I, the, Nova, the Novus Ordo has already said they have the same faith of salvation that the Lutherans have anyway. Francis has already said that. He's already directing the so-called Catholic people, the Novus Ordo Catholic people in South America, to go to, go to the Anglican Church and have the Anglicans come uh, to the Novus Ordo Church. So, in other words, if this, I don't know if it's a man or a woman, but if, if the person were to... Um, were to go to the Novus Ordo Church for the sake of finding the Catholic faith there, uh, that would be a, a lie and a scandal because it's not the traditional Catholic faith. If he, on the other hand, as he says, would go there to take his traditional Catholic faith there, then why doesn't he just go to a Lutheran church and profess the traditional Catholic faith and try to convert them? He might have better success there. Than with a with a going to an Orthodox church, look, people have been trying for years and years, for decades, saying, "I'm going to go to my Orthodox parish and I'm going to stand up for the traditional Catholic faith, and I'm going to stop them in their tracks, and I'm going to be a constant, not only thorn in their sides, but I'm going to turn this whole thing around." And you know what? They have all ended in utter failure, even to the point where they themselves have lost their faith and given up. <coughs> Um, the mo modernism in the, in the, in the Novus Ordo Church is not Catholicism. It is anti-Catholicism. Modernism is the very definition of anti-Catholicism. It's not just non-Catholicism. It is the direct opposite of Catholicism. You can't go to the Novus Ordo Church and think you're going to uh, uh, somehow swing them back toward Catholic tradition. It is, it is just absurd. You're not burying yourself by going to a traditional Catholic church. And I'm, I've got to be careful here because there are priests out there who are professing to, to offer the traditional Mass and professing to use the traditional Catholic, and they're really not. Yeah. So you really have to be careful, like the Turk bishops. Uh, they are f founded in something that is absolutely condemned by all Catholic tradition. That's where they got their start. And so, you know, when I say traditional Catholic priests, I'm not referring to them. Um, so, but the right thing to do is to find a real traditional Catholic priest who adhere, adheres truly to the traditional Catholic faith in, in his manner of his ordination and in the faith that he professes, in, in his teaching of the, of the doctrines of the faith, in his, in his uh, teaching of the moral, moral um, 
uh, you know, requirements of the church, how we live as Catholics, and in his worship, in the Mass and the Sacraments, that they're all the traditional Catholic Mass and Sacraments all the way through. They're the traditional Roman Rite. Uh, that he can't settle for any less than that, yeah. honestly. And Father, I've encountered that attitude a lot, where uh, where many people have the the viewpoint of uh, of you know we're, we're traditional Catholics, we have the true faith, but here you have all of the these these Nova Sordo, these, these uh, all these modernists. But we need to go to them and set a good example for them. We need to. Uh, we need we need to, to show all, all of our good works to them. We need to encourage the more conservative ones. If they, they do something that, that aligns with tradition, we need to praise them on that. We need to attend functions with them and interact with them and, and all of that and, and just, just try and, and convert them by, by our good example. But we need to actually be there, interact with them. Uh, even some will go as far as to say we need to attend masses with them in their, in their Nova Sordo chapels. And it seems to me that that, that attitude can be rather uh, uh, presumptuous. The church has always condemned that approach. Yeah. All the way along. Yeah. During the Protestant Reformation, absolutely condemned. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the church never said, well, look, we need you Catholics to go to those Lutheran services and stir things up. You know? <laughs> uh, no, absolutely not. Mm-hmm. This is totally contrary to all Catholic tradition. When God, when our, when our God sent the Israelites, the Hebrews, into the promised land, he didn't say, "Hey, go go and really, you know, get socially involved there, and, um, and try to win those people over, you know, uh, to monotheism." And uh, you know, I mean, if they sacrifice the fury of children to Moloch, you know, well, it's a price you have to pay—a little collateral damage. You're being ecumenical. Don't they realize that ecumenism is the, is the work of the devil here? And this is exactly the ecumenism, the ecumenical spirit, which says. You can have different religions in the same church, yeah. and you can't. Yeah. And um, it would be a lie and, a, and a, a sacrilege, and it would be a scandal for them to go and try that. Uh, the popes, right down through Pope Pius uh, the twelfth, the eleventh, uh, Benedict fifteenth. I'm not so sure how much he's wrote about this during the war years. Um, Saint Pius the tenth. Uh, Leo the Thirteenth wrote very firmly against. Uh, this is absolutely forbidden. So anybody who would have this uh, this uh, kind of misguided—I guess that's the nicest word I can think of—misguided notion that we have to meet them in their uh, in their temples of the Novus Ordo and uh, and join them in their uh, in their Novus Ordo cult. Uh, to try to bring them over to traditional Catholicism, they're playing right into the hands of the monitors. Mm-hmm. And you know, Father, that that uh, that that attitude is rather silly too, if you think about it, because you know we all know the the adage of one one bad apple will, will spoil the whole bushel. And here we have one uh, good apple mm-hmm. that's going into a whole bushel full of spoiled apples, mm-hmm. trying to to convert them. But it seems that. Um, well, can, since he bit the, that apple, I mean, you know, it's, <laughs> they're going to go and start biting all these. You know, yeah. it, it's, 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 no, you cannot bite the poison apple and uh, think that you're going to uh, convert the wicked witch. It's not going to happen. Yeah. Um, Tom, I, I mean, it's, it's frustrating to see this because uh, you see so many people who mean so well. Yeah, definitely. And yet they don't understand the nature of they don't, they really don't understand the nature of Catholicism and they don't understand the nature of modernism um, to think that this is the right approach and we have young people who are trying to do that right now by signing on with um, um, indult liturgies and unicum uh, liturgies and uh, uh, what do you call it um Summarum Pontificum liturgies offered by uh, clergymen within the, within Novus Ordo dioceses, and they, they think they're they're doing the right thing, and they're playing right into the hands of the modernists. They are actually conceding the very first principles of modernism, and uh, they're going they're going to wind up just full fledged out and out modernists. They keep going the way they're going. Yeah. So. 
Well, getting back to this email, you know, you you recently mentioned in regards to the the Shakart line of uh, of you know not not gambling with your soul and going to a, a doubt, doubtful priest. He he says here in this email that he's I've studied out the issue of ordination validity in regards to to Novus Ordo priests, and I'm certain that the revised texts are still valid. I know Father Jenkins and Bishop Kelly may disagree with me there, but I do not feel that I would be approaching dubious sacraments based on my research. And it seems to be the same thing of, I have this this feeling, you know, that I, I feel... It keeps using the word feeling. Yeah, I have this uh, feeling that validly feeling. ordained, ordained I priests, feel this, but, I feel that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'll tell you what. His feelings don't amount to anything, really. It's not a matter of what I feel, either. And if it were a matter of feelings, I'd like to just assume that it's fine and just go ahead. Because it sure is a lot of trouble yeah. facing reality. The reality of, of thinking it through, you know. But if you look back at the history of the Church, the Church has made some very strong statements about we don't mess with these things. Uh, we don't fool around with things and take chances on these things. Uh, probabil probabilism, probabiliarism, these are these are uh, positions with the sacraments the church is condemned. No, we don't we don't say I feel that this is okay, or I'm pretty convinced on uh, 99 chances out of 100 this is going to be okay. Church doesn't do those things with the sacraments. She's condemned these positions. Um, so again, I, I'm just saying that the the individual involved um, is one of those people who's trying to find his way through. But I think he's uh, using the wrong, uh, the wrong method of finding his way through here. When I, I mean, this may be a bit off the track. Heaven knows, you know, I never get off the track, Tom. But a few Sundays ago, I was stuck in Atlanta Airport when the power went out. I had just arrived in Atlanta Airport. I was there for about a half an hour when um, the power went out. And there are a lot of stories associated with this that I will not tell right now, uh, because I, I don't want you to do us off in the middle of the program. <laughs> I don't want the rest of it to. But there are a number of interesting stories, interesting for me anyway. But one of them had to do with uh, the fact that seven hours later, they were letting us leave the airport to fend for ourselves. I mean, there was nothing to do at the airport except <laughs> sit in the darkness. Um, so um, we were... There was a, a young lady there, it looked to me like she was probably in her teens, and uh, there in the darkness she's talking to people behind the desk, we could hardly make them out because of the darkness, but she was going to try to leave the airport in the darkness. She had a friend coming, she lived there in Atlanta, and was hoping the friend could come and pick her up. Um, but her, her cell phone pretty well had died, so she couldn't use the, the light on the cell phone. And she couldn't really use the cell phone to call either. You know, I mean, there, there was no power. You couldn't recharge anything. So I had a flashlight. I always travel with a flashlight, having went the hard way. So I said, well, if you'd like to come with me, you know, at least we can find our way, pick our way down the stairwells and through the tunnels, the underground tunnels connecting the concourses. And, uh, you know, we can get to the front of the airport. And she said, well, that's a good idea. So I guess she figured a priest, an old, overweight Irish Basically, Irish priest would be a safe bet, uh, especially when I carry a flashlight <laughs> to travel. So, anyway, so uh, it, it amazed me that we're heading down these these really very dark stairwells without the other people didn't have flashlights unless they had the light on their cell phones. That's what they were getting around. And hundreds of people were down, you know, trying to go through these tunnels and trying to funnel themselves into these escalators that weren't working, so they're picking their way step by step, hand over hand, down the escalators into the dark, even the darker areas down below, where it was pitch black down below, but for the fact that whatever artificial light they had. And um, so it took quite a while for everybody, you know, hundreds of people, as I say, to continually be funneling themselves down through this, those uh, escalators, those motionless escalators. And it was surreal to see, you know, the, the dancing of the light around all these heads and the silhouettes of all the people kind of making their way through those, those, uh, those darkened tunnels. I mean, they, they talk about zombie apocalypse. Well, that's exactly what it looked like. But as we're walking along, anyway, and, um, we're, we're talking about this and that and the other thing. And, and the young lady tells me she's actually 
a, a professor at a local university. <coughs> and I was surprised because she seemed so very young, you know. But, uh, and uh, she was calling me father, so I asked her, well, are you Catholic? And she said, well, no, actually, I'm an atheist. And I said, well, uh, that would have been my next question. She said, really? I said, well, yeah, I've, I've encountered enough young female professionals who have turned to atheism for whatever reason that I would have suspected if you weren't Catholic that you might be an atheist. She said, oh, really? That's surprising. I said, well, um, I asked her, are you a thinking atheist or a feeling atheist? <laughs> and she said, what do you mean? I said, well... Uh, there are those who feel their atheism and those who think they're atheism. And I told her about a gentleman I know from right here in Cincinnati who was a scientist who one day told me he was an atheist. And uh, I, I answered him, well, that's very interesting because someday I'd like to hear your arguments, why there, your scientific arguments, why there can be no God. He looked at me very puzzled and he said, I don't know what you're talking about. I said, well, obviously, you must have a proof that there is no God, because if you thought that there could be a God, you wouldn't be an atheist, you'd be an agnostic. So, as an atheist, you must have ruled out the possibility there is a God, so you must have some arguments to show that there can be no God. And he looked at me for a second as though I was trying to you know, get the better of him. And he just said, well, I just, I feel better when I think there is no God. That was his answer. This is what the scientists said. So I was very disappointed because I thought that at some point we could sit down and have a very lively discussion, but an intellectual discussion. Yeah. It was impossible to discuss his feelings. That he felt better when he thought there was no God, you know. Uh, so I, I mentioned this to her. I said, you know, this man obviously was going by his feelings. Even though it was a scientist... It wasn't really an intellectual matter with him. I mean, so it wasn't a thinking atheist, it was a feeling atheist. That's what I mean. Well, she assured me that she was a thinking atheist. And then, sure enough, within the matter of a few sentences, I feel this, and I feel that, and I feel the other thing. It was all about feelings, you know. So I said, well, don't you believe that we have souls? Um, you know, you have students, and uh, you grew up in a family with parents and children, uh, siblings of your own. Don't you really think we have souls? She said, oh yes, I believe we do have souls. I said, well, that's kind of curious because how do we have souls without God to create them? <clears throat> she said, well, I think, I feel that we create our own souls. So I said, well, that's a kind of an interesting hypothesis here. We create our own... How do we create our own souls? I was trying not to sound condescending. You know, I just like was trying to think this through, not feel it through, but think it through. I said, how do we create our own souls? So she said, well, by thinking. By thinking, we actually create our own souls. So I thought, oh, there you go. Existentialism. That's the existentialism yeah. express. Okay, yeah. this is what they're getting. This is what all the kids are getting at the college now. Create your own self. Create your own self by your own thought. You know, or feelings, even better. So I made a very, very bold assertion to her. I said, "Well, you know, thinking actually requires the soul. There has to be a soul to begin with to think. So you can't." create your soul by thinking because it, your thinking, the very act of thinking, presupposes there is a soul to think. And she looked at me as though I was trying to trick her. As though I was trying to trick her by some uh, ledger to man, sleight of hand, um, errant little bit of logic in there. And so she said she just wanted to eliminate the middleman. That's God, I guess. So we're all able to create our own souls. And it just seemed very obvious to her. Mm -hmm. And uh, she changed the subject at that point. Yeah. But I'm afraid that the same kind of thinking is going on by some of our folks who are trying to find their way back to the traditional faith. That they're trying to almost, like the people who are down in those tunnels, feel their way along. You know? But it's all feeling. 
It's not, it's not what they can see. They're not going by the light of actual, the, the light of the faith. They're feeling their way through the darkness. And as I saw that down in the tunnels there, I couldn't help but think of the fact that here it is, you know, Advent, we're approaching Christmas, and the prophecy of Isaiah, the prophet, the people who have sat in, in darkness have seen a great light. And there we were, all of us, hundreds of people down there, okay? Uh, just kind of groping our way through the darkness um, with what with failing lights from their cell phones, and that's all they had to go by for much of, their, much of the path they were taking. So um, it was just very sad, and I was thinking, well, I, I hope these people can find their way t- to see the great light. <laughs> you know? uh, and I pray that she, that this young lady, will, will finally see her way to see the great light too, and realize that it's not a matter of uh, how she feels about God, or how she feels about reality, or even how she feels about creating her own soul, but that she sees that there is a creator who made her in his own image and likeness, and, and loves her, and um, that she responds by knowing and loving him someday, too. I don't want our traditional Catholic people, or want to be traditional Catholic people, who still have enough faith to realize the modernism is not, is not right, but that's not Catholicism. But I don't want to get lost in the darkness as they're trying to feel, feel their way through. Mm-hmm because they're following modernist principles in trying to escape modernism. And they are following modernist principles if they believe that they can somehow ecumenically practice the Novus Ordo and the traditional Catholic faith at the same time, or even go along with it for the sake of uh, almost a kind of deception to infiltrate the Novus Ordo, to try to bring people over to the traditional faith. Because the very fact that they're doing that shows that they themselves are already betraying their traditional Catholic faith. Mm-hmm. Father, there's a, uh, there's a, a uh, I believe he's a Nova Sordo Catholic writer, Selwyn Duke, who he writes a lot for, uh, for different conservative <coughs> publications, and he frequently in his writings will make the point of this... Uh, uh, of how of, of relativity, talk about that, and and how uh, so many people today believe that the truth is is relative, and their their the whole guiding principle for life is if it feels good, relative to do what? it. Okay, relative to feelings. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay. But but he he will frequently make the point that you know if if that's what what our world is reduced to, then all we're left with is is chaos. Everything is simply a matter of taste anymore. He will often use the example of. I like chocolate ice cream, you like vanilla ice cream, it's exactly the same. Maybe you like murder, I don't like murder, but there's nothing we can yeah, do about it. Some people it. like that's, cannibalism, I guess. That's how you feel about it, that's your left. taste. Yeah. No. Um, that's true. I, I thought that that, that paralleled nicely with um, with uh, the the judge Robert Bork and his mm-hmm. his his book. He, uh, Slouching the, Towards the Slouching Towards the Moral, it was a, a, a great book, but it, I know towards the end he was talking about morality and how that comes from religion, but not just any religion. It, it comes from uh, the religion where our, our principles are literally carved in stone and, mm-hmm. and handed down to us. So there actually is uh, just facts. There actually is objective truths, and there's not just feelings. And everything else, every other religion, anything else that that tries to live off of this principle of, of feelings or whatnot, that it's it's a farce. Mm-hmm. So I thought that... that uh, Right. Well, nicely. Well, well said. Well, Father, how about one more email? This one was short. I thought it was fun. Some, one of our viewers wanted to know, who's the exorcist for the Society of St. Pius V? Well, I don't know that any has been appointed. Okay. Uh, you know, that's the kind of thing you're very careful about. Generally speaking, uh, in the past, whenever there were exorcists appointed, they were not, their names were not revealed anyway. Okay. Uh, so if there were to be one, I certainly wouldn't be announcing it. I can just tell you for a fact, it is not myself. Okay? <laughs> although, although I think all of our priests are called upon at various times to deal with uh, rather dicey situations. Uh, when I have somebody come in, as I do about two or three times a year, uh, generally very thoughtful, respectable people, not prone to hysteria, 
But the first words out of their mouth is, Father, you're going to think I'm crazy, but... I mean, I know it's coming because they talk about things that are happening in their homes um, that are very distressing. And um, so I think that all of our priests have had experiences like that uh, over the years. And uh, there are a number of occasions when I, I think that there are natural explanations, but uh, there are a number of cases because of the credibility of the individual and the stories that they tell, it's, they're not making these things up. And so uh, it's necessary to go and have the exorcism of a place, okay? It's not the same uh, dealing with diabolical possession of a person, okay? That's a much more serious matter. Um, that's when you need to have a, a full-fledged Exorcist, you know, but the exorcist really needs to know what he's doing. And uh, I will tell you this: when uh, I went through a cone uh, with Archbishop Lefebvre, uh, there was not a lot of attention paid to, to Chapter Eleven of the traditional ritualy that I saw, um, because the effort was to produce traditional Catholic priests who really could uh, take the traditional sacraments with the traditional faith and traditional moral teaching of the church and go out and deal with souls who are really in darkness, really left, abandoned by the Nova Soto, or had abandoned the Nova Soto uh, themselves. And so the idea of training exorcists, I, I don't know that though, at least I, I didn't see great emphasis on it. And um, so, um, when Father Amorth, Father Gabriele Amorth, who was the chief exorcist in Rome for you know, a generation, and an assistant even for a generation before that, when he published his book, An Exorcist Tells His Story, and I read that, I, I had questions about it, so I actually went to chapter, the, the introduction to chapter 11 of the traditional ritual and read in Latin the 21 directions given by the church to exorcists. And I saw that Father Amorth was following those perfectly. I thought, this is very interesting. Um, and and in, in his book, you know, he complained that the Novus Ordo had not, uh, had basically discounted and ignored that section of the ritual on exorcisms. And later on, then, as if to answer his concern, they did apply themselves to produce some new rite of exorcism. And Father Amorth himself said, if I had to use that new rite of exorcism, I would give up. And so he continued using the traditional rite of exorcism to the very end. He wouldn't use the Novus Ordo rite of exorcism because it was useless, like the Novus Ordo itself. Um, but... Um, you know, there is a great deal of uh, talk now about diabolical possession. As Father Amorth himself said, the, the, the devil himself was extending his influence more and more because he was not opposed. Certainly not by the Novus Ordo clergy. And so the, the, re, the writer asks a very good question about exorcists, the presence and the practice of exorcism. Uh, in answer to the question, I don't know that anyone has been appointed to do that, but I would heartily recommend that all traditional priests uh, be trained in the caveats of exorcism and what they are to do and what they are not to do when they are faced with an actual case of possession. And even when they're called upon to go to a place that apparently is infested with some diabolical influence, as I, I think we all have at times. Sure. Okay. Fair enough. Well, Father, uh, it seems that uh, perhaps being the Christmas season that we could end on a, a happier note than, <laughs> than, than exorcism and, and devil. So would you have any, any words of advice for us here during three Well, I think actually driving devils out is a very happy note. <laughs> okay. <laughs> to free a soul or a place from their evil influence. Uh, you yeah. know, that's the victory of Christ, right? Yeah, that's true. Um, so I, I would just say that with regard to the Christmas season, remember it lasts right on through to February 2nd. Uh, do not fall victim to the, the, the Christmas of the modernists, the Christmas of the liberals and the secularists, uh, 
so that we, we all party during Advent, and then when Christ is born, we stop. <laughs> and so his birth is a time to stop uh, rejoicing. Yep. No, that's where we begin to rejoice as Catholics. And we rejoice for the entire 40 days, from Christmas Day all the way through to Candlemas Day, the Feast of Purification, February 2nd. That's the Catholic thing to do. So uh, keep celebrating and let the world know you are celebrating the real Christmas. Um, but uh, celebrate it in the right way, okay? <laughs> and that is to uh, let the world know there is, there is a Savior from Heaven. There's Christ the Lord, who is the Son of God Himself, uh, who has come here for us and, and try to um, show the real Christmas spirit. Uh, you know, there are those who will not be ruled by Christ, and uh, as, the, as the parable in the gospel says, you know, that we will not have this man to rule over us. Well, make it very clear that Christ rules in your home, that Christ rules in your heart, in your mind, by the way you live your life. And uh, that's the, the best way, the, the, the only real way to celebrate Christmas, truly, as a Catholic. Sure. Well, Merry Christmas, Father. Thank you for being well, here today. Well, blessed Christmas to you and all. No problem. Thanks to all of our viewers for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you. And put those Christmas trees back up <laughs> until February 2nd. <laughs> Keep them plugged in. There you go.